chapter 18, beginning with verse 21. We're going to look at the last few verses of the chapter. Chapter 17 is judgment declared and uh, carried out upon the religious element of the world system, Mystery Babylon. This happens at the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist who has, who has used the religious element to get into power turns upon her and destroys her. There is no loyalty amongst the wicked. Then chapter 18 is the destruction of the, is the declaration of the destruction of the, the commercial element of the world system. This takes place at the end of the tribulation period when Christ returns. Its onset begins with the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh vial. They're at the end and then it's fully carried out when Christ returns. So we're talking about the commercial element of the world system. The world system, system going back to the days of Cain has always had a religious element and a commercial element. It's two sides of the same coin. And this world system that vexes us, as it did Lot in the city of Sodom, will one day fall. We won't be bound to it. Here in America, we are bound to it. We foolishly and arrogantly talk about how slavery ended in America. And we take down statues and judge people of other generations as if we understand the complexities of the decisions they face because we hold an iPhone in our hand. And we're too blind to see that we are every bit as much slaves today to the world system as slaves were to their plantation masters in the 1800s. We're slaves to politics. We're slaves to our jobs. We go into a job interview and we say, Gene, you can test it this, we say we, we will not work on Sundays and then our job, our, our, the guy interviewing, oh, you don't have to worry about that. We won't. And then you get hired and then they lie to you and then they try to make you come in. We're slaves to our health insurance. We're slaves to health care. Oh, that's the number one issue on the minds of people when they vote. The slaughter of unborn babies means nothing, but I've got to have my health care. <clears throat> Immigrants and illegal migrants flooding into our countries, our, our borders, means nothing because I've got to have my health care. We're, some of us are slaves to sports and the, the public school system and the colleges that we went to and got a degree and we spend the rest of our lives paying off the debts and then we came and get a job in the field we study. We're slaves. And only in Christ can be, we, be, we be freed from the slavery of the world system. We have to remember this system and all that it offers will one day fall. And that's what we're reading about here. We talked about the declaration of doom in chapter 18 um, in the first few verses there. Uh, let me just make sure I've got my outline correct here. Verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 8, we see a notice of collateral damage. There's collateral damage that comes with the destruction of this system. More than half the world's population is destroyed during the time of Jacob's trouble. The Bible says, come out of her. And be separate. We have to come out now. We're spared from this time in Jesus Christ. But we need to come out now because the spirit of that system, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. That's why we study these things. So that we can recognize the spirit and true doctrine from false doctrine. 
Verses 9 through 19, we talked last week about the courtroom reaction. The merchants and the kings and the shipmasters who trusted so much in this system. The CEOs, the politicians, uh, the, uh, the, the wealthy, the Illuminati, whatever you want to call them. The bankers standing afar off in shock, weeping and wailing. They don't even know what to do. And they stand afar off because in the day of the system's fall, there's no loyalty. Those that lived by her and stood by her stand afar off when she is judged. Then we looked at the end last week at verse 20, which is an invitation actually in the midst of all this chaos and destruction, an invitation to celebrate. We talked about the celebration that comes for the righteous or should be with the righteous when God judges. Not rejoicing over our enemy, but rejoicing in the Lord. And we're going to see a very important word in chapter 19 that appears all over the Old Testament, which is translated from the Hebrew, that shows up only four times in the New Testament. And it's all in chapter 19. And that word sums up the chapter, and it sums up what it means to rejoice in the judgment and why that's different than rejoicing over our enemy or laughing at him when... when, when uh, trial or, or a judgment befalls and there's a big difference there but I want to finish up the chapter first after this invitation to celebration in 21 through 24 the end of the chapter what we see is an epitaph the legacy what will the ultimate legacy of this world system be what will be etched upon its tombstone what will burn with that eternal smoke that goes up forever and ever it's an epitaph of eradication Everything that the world systems offers now will not be remembered in its legacy. Its legacy will be one of eradication, of failure. The world system is here eradicated and will be so. Thus saith the Lord. Verse 21, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea. You know what a millstone is, right? It's a big, flat, circular stone with a, a hole in the middle. Very heavy. They used to use it to grind down the grain and the mill. Cast into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and she shall be found no more at all. And the voice of the harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeteers or trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee, and the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee, for thy merchants were the great men of the earth, For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. The world system is eradicated. And we see that here declared in verse 21. This image of a mighty angel Casting a millstone into the sea. What would happen to the waters if a mighty millstone was cast 
into a lake or a pond. It would be a huge splash, a huge upsetting of the waters. It would cause waves to come up onto the shore. Kind of like when uh, Matthew does a cannonball off the diving board in my parents' swimming pool. Still waters become enraged and tossed. Thus, with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down. We're talking about not just a system, but a city associated with that. And I did discuss a little bit about what this means in the last days. Will the city of Babylon be rebuilt as the Antichrist capital? Will it be rebuilt? He sets himself up as God in Jerusalem, a religious capital, but will there be a political capital like, like Rome had when, it, when the empire was, was divided? The religious capital was in Rome. The political capital was in Constantinople. It'll be thrown down with violence. We see this word violence, and every time we hear the word, we associate it with those things which are evil. My friend, you do err not knowing the scriptures. Violence is often associated with those that are evil. The Bible says in Psalm 11 that the Lord hates those who love violence. The, soul, the Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and those that love violence, his soul hates. You know, God hates. Now, that might not fit your worldview, but understand we're preaching Bible God here, not American God. Not Mormon Jesus or Catholic Jesus. It's Bible God, Bible Jesus. And the God of the Bible not only hates the sin. Psalm 5.5 says, Thou hatest the workers of iniquity. Sin has no meaning apart from the sinner. God hates iniquity, He hates sin, and He hates the sinner, and His judgment is coming, and it'll be judgment with violence. That's why we need a Messiah. Only the Messiah can save us to God, to a relationship with Him, to eternal life, and only the Messiah can save us from God. Only the Messiah can save us from the casting down of a millstone with great violence. With violence. David prayed that those who betrayed him and betrayed God in his latter end when he gave Solomon concluding admonitions to carry out after his death. One of the things David told Solomon to make sure he did and to do it righteously was to make sure that those who had betrayed him and the Lord were brought down to the grave with violence or with blood. And we see that happen with Joab and some others. And it was done righteously. Thus will this system be thrown down with violence. And the word, thrown, the word translated thrown down here means to scatter. To literally to scatter it. Kind of like threshing wheat scatters the chaff into the air when the breeze blows. We see this exact scene with the world system in Daniel chapter 2. Let's turn there. Daniel has his vision, or Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he can't even remember what the dream is or what it meant. And he asked the wise men of Babylon to tell him, and nobody could. And they're like, how could we tell you what you dreamed? You're asking the impossible. And then in his rage, Nebuchadnezzar declared that all the wise men and philosophers and sorcerers of the kingdom be executed. And Daniel and his three friends from the Hebrew children are like, wait a minute. 
there's a God in heaven that can, can, can give understanding here. At least let me approach him about it. So the captain went to the king and said, I found these Hebrews. They, they claim to be able to do this. Just give them a little time. And Daniel sought the Lord. And God gave him not just the interpretation of the dream. He gave him the dream. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't even remember what he dreamed. And we know we have the vision of the great statue that represented the Gentile world kingdoms from Nebuchadnezzar's day to the end of time. We had Babylon and, 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 and Persia and Greece and Rome. And the feet of that statue is the revived Roman Empire, the kingdom of the beast. That's partly strong but partly broken. That's iron mixed with clay. Ten toes are the same as the ten horns of the beast that the whore rides in Revelation 17. The ten horns of the beast and the full-grown Antichrist of Revelation 13. The ten horns of the dragon in, in Revelation chapter 12. But Daniel, at the end of this vision, this is what happens. Daniel chapter 2, 34 and 35. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. So the image was smote on its feet with a stone made without hands. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold. Remember the gold, the silver, and the brass was, was uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece. So we're not, it's not just the, the, fourth, the, the, the revived Roman Empire. Then all the Gentile empires were broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image, the great millstone cast into the sea, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, O king. Now we're going to tell you what it means. So... The stone cut without hands in Daniel 2 is the great millstone cast into the sea in Revelation 18. The Gentile kingdoms that are scattered by the destruction of this image is the great city that is thrown down in Revelation 18. So please understand, my nose keeps itching, I'm sorry. Please understand that what is revealed here to John in the, New, in, in, the, in the New Testament is nothing different than what's already been revealed. The New Testament is not new revelation. It's commentary on the revelation already given. And from time to time, if the Holy Spirit quotes an Old Testament passage and reemphasizes something there, then the Holy Spirit who wrote the Old Testament is free to commentate upon it in the New it's not different. It's the same. It's not new doctrine here. It's all been written. And it confirms and agrees with itself. It's a kingdom and a system that is thrown down here with violence. And through the Messiah is the only way we can escape this. That's why we need to be ready now. Don't make the foolish decision that, oh, I'll just party it up and if, if, if the church is raptured or if the end comes, then I'll believe. No, you won't. When I think about this image of a millstone being cast into the sea, I'm reminded of some words of Jesus. Jesus used this same image in Luke 17. He, he used the same image. So to a system 
The same to those individuals who carry out what the system stands for. In Luke 17, verses 1 and 2, Then said he, or Jesus, unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. These things we read about have to happen for God to be glorified and for history to culminate. The fall of America has to happen. But woe unto them through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. It's better the fate of Babylon than for those who would harm little ones. You know, we think what's happening in Revelation 18 is bad for the world system, but even worse to the man who would harm a little one. I think about how many little ones are harmed in this nation every day, not even allowed to exit their mother's wombs. It's better for Babylon and commercial Babylon in Revelation 18 that it will be for those who slaughter the innocent unborn. The most dangerous place in America today is in the mother's womb. The most dangerous place for the black man in America today is in his mother's womb. The number of little black babies that are butchered in this country in the name of convenience would astound you in terms of percentages. And yet people are blind. Yet the black folk of this country are blind to the fact that those who foisted abortion on this society wanted to see the eradication of the black race and openly talked about it. And yet we're blind. What we read about here in a millstone in the sea is bad, but Jesus said it's worse for the man who harms little ones. Think about that. A millstone cast into the sea. It's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be cast in the sea than for what awaits you who harm the little ones, who molest the little children, who shout their abortions, who take advantage of the children of little families. Be warned. In verses 22 and 23, we see that all will be a faded memory. You know, when we look at the scriptures, we need to pay attention. Sometimes the pronoun changes. Sometimes a little word changes. And that's what happens here. What's being discussed in verses in, in 21 is a declaration, the third person. But then in verses 22 and 23, it shifts. This is not a declaration about. This is a declaration to. And the voice of the harpers and musicians and pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. So the world system was described, its judgment was described from the third person like a millstone cast into the sea. Here the system itself and all that it represents are addressed. These things will no longer be heard in you. This is God Himself through His messenger speaking directly to 
the world system and everything it stands for? Is he speaking to us now because our trust is in this system? Here's God speaking directly to the world system. These things that you love, these things that you covet, these things whereby you are profited shall no more be found in you. The little things you've taken for granted, like the, like the light of a candle, the voice of a bridegroom and of a bride won't be heard anymore in you. Your merchants were so great, but by them the whole world was deceived. Your epitaph will be one of eradication. and Everything you offered will be just a faded memory. You see, when Satan offered Jesus authority over all the kingdoms of the world, if he would but bow down to him, Satan had that authority. That authority was given him when Adam was deceived and handed the title deed of the earth over to Satan. But the second Adam purchased it back, the kinsman redeemer. And Satan had the authority to offer it to Christ at that moment. Because at that moment it hadn't been purchased and at that moment it was not the time for the redeemer to come claim what was his. And had Satan, in, I mean, had Jesus in his humanity fallen down before Satan, I believe the universe would have collapsed upon itself and ceased to exist. But in his humanity, he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Satan's authority is temporary. Christ is final. And everything he offers at best is vain. At best, it's temporary. And when it's taken away, we're going to learn sad truths. We're going to learn that what we trusted in ultimately had no value and the things we took for granted and minimized, we wish we could have them again. The light of a candle. We take the light we flip on with the switch for granted today. The warmth and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, the ambiance it provides. It's taken for granted. And when it's taken away one day, when a solar flare or some sort of a microwave weapon from another country eradicates our electricity, how do we act when our electricity goes out? We freak out because we take these blessings for granted. The bride and the bridegroom, the time with our families, the time of fellowship here, are we taking them for granted? We'll find out when they're taken from us. All that the world system has to offer deceives and leads to death and destruction. It's the wide path that Jesus warned about. For thy merchants, the commercial element, were the great men of the earth. For by thy sorceries, the religious element, were all nations deceived. Here the world system's being addressed. And then we move back to the third person in verse 24. The world system is a political or commercial element plus a spiritual element. And just as in Eden, Adam and Eve were deceived... Eve primarily, Adam directly disobeyed God and then he blamed God. He didn't blame the woman. He told God, the woman that you gave me made me do it. He blamed God. So as in Eden will be at the end of time, all nations will be deceived. They've already been deceived. In this future judgment is a warning for today. 
It's a warning for our lives. Remember how I talked about ruin being a reminder or it should be a reminder of the end of men? It's a reminder for us. I see similar language used in a personal exhortation in the Old Testament. This is an exhortation or or declaration of judgment against an entity and all that it represents. But we see a similar thing said to to individuals in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew is named Kohelet. The word Kohelet means the preacher. The preacher had a few things to say. Solomon was a ladies' man in his youth. He was a king, blessed by God, a wise king. Then he allowed the ladies to turn him away from the Lord and he utterly failed and the kingdom would be taken from him, from his son and divided. But in his old age, he was a preacher. And in his old age, he realized the vanities of trusting in the world system. See, Ecclesiastes shows us why the world system is vain. Revelation 17 and 18 shows us its destruction. But in chapter 12, Solomon says something here that's similar to what's declared in Revelation 18. Remember thou, or I'm sorry, remember now, the warning. Think about, this is a warning. Because of what awaits the world system, because of what Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This should be a warning. Remember now, not in the future, remember now the Creator in the days of thy youth. There's a lot of young people in here. Robert's still in his youth. I can't believe the age difference between the two of us makes me feel like an old man. <laughs> he climbs up the side of mountains that we really should have a rope. If you fail, you'd be dead and thinks nothing of it. I used to be like that, but I'm an old man now. I think about stuff. In martial arts, we say a young man will fight you, an old man will kill you. Different. There's some still in their youth in here. Kids, you're in your youth. The Bible tells you to remember your Creator when you're young. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth while the evil days come not. In your youth, be thankful. You don't see the days as evil like mommy and daddy do, like grandma and grandpa do. Nor the years draw nigh when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. As a youth, you rejoice in your youth and everything that lies ahead. But as you get older, what this life has won't offer pleasure. You'll see it very differently when you're, when you're our age. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few. And those that look out of the windows be darkened. And the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. And when they shall be afraid of that which is high and fear shall be in the way. Things you don't fear now, kids. You'll fear when you grow old if you're not careful. I was a bold preacher in my youth. I had no fear of standing up on the streets. I battle fear. In my latter years. Also when they shall be afraid of that which is high. And fear shall be in the way. And the almond tree shall flourish. And the grasshopper shall be a burden. And desire shall fail. Because man goeth to his long home. And the mourners go about the streets. His long home is death. We can't escape it. Except through Messiah. 
10 out of 10 die. Or ever the silver cord be loosed and the golden bowl be broken or the pitcher be broken at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. All is vanity. Guys, what this world has to offer all ends in vanity. So you best remember your creator now before you grow old and forget him. There are many that grow very old. Sometimes we say there's hope for people as long as there's breath in their lungs. And we look at the elderly who've heard the truth their entire lives and who have rejected it, rejected it, and rejected it. I'm not so sure that's true. I'm not so sure there's hope for every man as long as there's breath in his lungs. There are many that waste away and no longer have the ability to comprehend the basic truth of the gospel because they've rejected it over and over and over and over again. Remember your Creator now because one day you may not have the lips to praise Him. You may not have the mind to comprehend Him. And all that stuff you bury in your heart now, when you get old and the dementia sets in, it'll come out of your mouth. You know, there are a lot of people that are elderly you wouldn't believe the filth that comes out of their mouth. And we excuse it like they got dementia or whatever. No, dementia just brings out what's been in here all along, and you've been able to hide it. But when you lose your faculties, you can't control it anymore. This is a warning to serve God now and not to hope that one day you'll live it up and then one day you'll make that decision. The preacher says that's foolishness. Kids, you need to... Remember your Creator now. And you need to get saved now before it's too late. I won't go into details, but I heard one of the kids in here. It sounded kind of like an argument, but I heard him use a word, hell. And I thought, what the heck? Where did you learn to talk like that? I said, what did you just say? And she said, I just told this person if they don't get saved, they're going to go to hell. And I said, well... Amen. One of the kids in here that's been saved telling one of the kids that's not that if they don't get saved, they're going to go to hell. I wasn't going to chastise him for that. It's true. Remember him now before it's too late. I'm thankful to God he saved me in my youth. Some of you didn't save in your youth. And you can praise God for that too. Because when he saves you in your middle age, you feel like you're young again. At least in spirit. But I praise God for that. I can't do the things I used to could do. I don't recover as quick. I can't travel and walk over the mountain ridges as fast as I used to. I don't have the energy anymore. I thank God there was a time for that. And I'm thank, I thank God that we can still serve Him. Remember the Creator in your youth because everything that's written about the world system in its epitaph will be your epitaph in this life. The candle won't flicker anymore. The windows will grow dark. The noise in the streets will fade and the doors will shut. As to Babylon, so to us. At the end of the chapter, Solomon said, let me, let me tell you the whole conclusion. This world system is vain. Therefore, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of men. Why? Because God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God's going to bring every work of the system into judgment, and He's going to bring every work of the individual into judgment. 
That's why we need a Messiah. That's why we need a Messiah to be our righteousness. That's not new doctrine either. It says in Isaiah, God says, look unto me and be ye saved. That a man may say, in the Lord I have righteousness. If we have righteousness in the Lord and his blood, his death, burial, and resurrection covers us, we can escape God's judgment. The last verse of the chapter says, we go from the uh, a second person declaration to the system back to a third person. And in her, this is the epitaph. In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. A lot of blood on the hands of the world system and she's going to account for it. A similar thing is said in chapter 17 and this is what indicates we're talking about two sides of the same coin yet two sides. Mystery Babylon, which is the false religious system that's judged by the beast and his cohorts at the midpoint of the tribulation and then we've got the commercial element fully manifest in the last time in the kingdom of the beast where men have to have a mark and all these things and that time is limited it's limited to 42 months three and a half years very clear in the book of Daniel but at the end of chapter or in chapter 17 as we talk about the whore in verse 6 she was drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Here at the end of chapter 18, in her, this city of Babylon was the blood of prophets and of saints. So we have uh, the martyrs and saints of Jesus in chapter 17, and this is prophets and saints of all the earth in chapter 18. We have a different entity. Chapter 17 is the church age whore, the religious whore manifested throughout the ages in what we've come to see as Roman Catholicism who will have a major part once the church is taken out in the rapture. There's no martyrs of Jesus prior to Stephen in Acts 7. In 18, we see history's whore. Chapter 17 spans the whore who's been drunk in the church age and 18 goes out to include all of human history from the blood of Abel all the way down to the tribulation saints. This commercial element has blood on her hands. But it's one and the same. Different entities, but one and the same. Kind of like Republican and Democrat. Two sides of the same coin, if we're honest with ourselves. They both need each other. They both keep us all in check. Two sides of the same coin. In chapter 18, or in 17, we have the pronouncement of judgment against the religious whore. We see the judgment fall upon her at the midpoint of the tribulation. But chapter 18 for commercial Babylon is more a declaration of judgment and the onset thereof. And then as we move into chapter 19, chapter 19 is what that will look like. So chapter 18 is judgment against, the, against Babylon versus mystery Babylon in chapter 17. Judgment against Babylon and then chapter 19, this is what it looks like. We've had it declared, this is going to happen. This w- will be your epitaph. It will be like violently like a millstone cast into the sea. All the men of the world, the great leaders and those with power will stand afar off and gasp. The righteous will celebrate. 
Now let's, let's, let's see what it looks like. Let's look at the play-by-play. So we see this carried out in chapter 19. I'll just remind us of a verse that I read at the end of the message last week. You know, as we read about these future things, and we might take the position, well, we're part of the church, and we believe the scriptures teach the pre-trib rapture, and we won't have to be around. Well, that's, a, that's an erroneous position to take. Peter asked a question in light of the last day's judgments. Seeing then that all these things will be, resol- uh, be dissolved, everything that we live and walk amongst will one day be resolved. I mean, in light of that fact, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? So it is applicable to us. We ought to think about these future judgments and the vanities of this life like Solomon did and say, okay, well then, how should we conduct ourselves? As lights in the darkness, as pilgrims in a barren and strange land, as heralds of a coming king. Now this is kind of nice. My Revelation study notes over the years have been in notebooks. So at the end of chapter 18... The notebook is finished. i got to open a new one. So um, this one says Revelation 19, 1 through, and I haven't filled it out yet because I don't know where it's going to end. So let's get into chapter 19. Before I do, I think it would behoove us to review just for a few minutes the, an outline of the book of Revelation. Jesus gives us the outline. And where people get in trouble is they don't acknowledge Jesus' outline. In chapter 1, verse 19, God, Jesus told John to write down three things. The things which you have seen already, the things which are in the present time, and the things which shall be after the present time. Those are the three things. Well, by the time Jesus gives this commandment to John, he had already seen something. He had seen the vision of the glorified Christ as he appears to his church. We're going to find that when Christ comes to the earth to overthrow Antichrist, there's a lot of similarities between what the world sees and what John the church sees. There's overlap in who Christ is. He's not a weakling hanging on a cross. The cross is empty. He's not meek and mild. He's a righteous king. So John saw the glorified Christ as the priest intercessing on behalf of his church. The things which are, are chapters 2 and 3, the message to the seven churches. Remember, we looked at each church. They were churches in John's day. They're types of churches that existed all the time. But on this side of history, we can look back and see it's also prophetic. Church history follows right along. With the seven churches. We're in the last church period. The Laodicean church. The lukewarm church. Began around the beginning of the 20th century. And it'll end with the rapture. The lukewarm church. The rights of the people. I praise God for the Philadelphia. The remnant church of the. 80s, 1700 and 1900. The great missionary movements. The revivals. The awakenings. All those things. That laid seeds so that we could believe today. But the church age. And then beginning with chapter 4, verse 1, it's the last element, the last part of the outline. It takes up the majority of the book. This is the things which will be after the church age. 
The church age ends when the church is caught up to heaven. Interestingly, we see John caught up to heaven in chapter 4, verse 1, immediately when the third part of the book ensues. I did a lengthy teaching on this year, several years ago. Revelation 4, 1, the rapture of the church. Those messages are available online. The rapture, the pre-trib rapture of the church is not a New Testament doctrine. It wasn't a doctrine made up by a 19th century theologian. It wasn't a doctrine made up by a blind girl that had a dream. Like some people say, it's an Old Testament doctrine that's in the Old Testament and it's expanded upon in the New Testament. The things which shall be hereafter, chapter 4, 4 verse 1, the rapture of the church, the rest of chapter 4 and verse 5, we had the throne room of heaven. The church was there. The Lamb was the one who was worthy to open up the title deed of the earth. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, we see the tribulation period, which is called Daniel's 70th week in the book of Daniel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30. Remember, the tribulation serves two points, two purposes. It's not to purge the righteous or the church to make them ready. That's purgatory doctrine. We've been purged because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's to judge the wickedness of this world and it's to wake up the people of Israel. In this tribulation, chapter 6 through 8 gave us the seven sealed judgments as the Lamb opens that title deed. The judgments fall. The seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments that we see in chapters 8 through 11. The seventh trumpet is the seven vile judgments we see in chapters 15 through 16. By the time we get down to 17, 18, and 19, that title deed is open. And in a way, you could look at chapters 17 and 18 as it's being read publicly. And then in chapter 9, the one who lays claim comes to take what is his. In the midst of that, we had a pause in chapters 12 through 14 where we kind of analyzed. John gives details about some of the main characters of the tribulation period. Israel, Satan, the Messiah, Michael the archangel, the Jewish witnesses that will complete the Great Commission after the church is taken out, Antichrist, the false prophet. Then we get to chapters 17 and 18, the destruction of the world system, mystery Babylon the great, the religious element. And then Babylon the Great, the commercial element in chapter 18. And then we come to chapter 19. Chapter 19, the first 16 verses, the second coming of Christ. And then verses 17 through 21 is the battle, the last battle, the, the battle of Armageddon. When we get to those passages, we're going to look at Zechariah 14 because it's the same thing. Same thing Zechariah saw in chapter 14, John describes in chapter 19. In fact, uh, there was a scene in that old Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that was taken right from Zechariah 14. It's amazing how many biblical allusions are in the things of our society. We're too blind to see it. And oftentimes, the people that write the movies are, are wicked, but they still allude to the Bible. It's amazing, the power of the Scriptures. 
By the time we get to chapter 19, the title deed of the earth is fully open. Chapter 17 occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation. Chapter 18 at the end. And it's fully carried out when Christ returns. So this title deed is fully open. There's a public claim of possession with a book in hand. If you remember back in chapter 10, we saw a parenthesis, the mighty angel. Christ as he appears on behalf of Israel, like the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He's got one foot on the land and one in the water in an open book. And he swears by him that lives forever and ever. It's the same thing Daniel saw in chapter 12. And in both of those places, there were things that were said that the prophet was told to seal. Remember the seven thunders uttered something and God told John, or the the angel told John not to write it down? Don't write it down. That's not the time for that. When Daniel saw what he saw, he was told to seal up what he heard until the time of the end. There was something declared that was kept under wraps. Well, right here in chapter 19, it's revealed. It'll be revealed. I believe what was said there was something about who Jesus is. We talked about this in our journey. There were times where God spoke from heaven. And that was one of them. And every time in the Gospels, it was about who Jesus is. This will, what the seven thunders uttered what Daniel was told to seal concerns who the Messiah is I believe I believe we're going to be able to tie it to Hosea chapter 5 verse 15 I'm just setting the stage here there's an interesting prophecy here you know we the church are told to be prepared for Christ to come at any moment and a lot of so called Christians confuse that with the second coming of Christ. They deny a rapture because they say the word rapture is not in the Bible, but these are the same Christians who believe in a a trinity, a triune God. The word trinity is not in the Bible. There's a lot of words not in the Bible. iPhone's not in the Bible, but I believe in an iPhone. I I see it right here on my pulpit recording this message. I don't think we think about how foolish our arguments are sometimes. But in Hosea 5.15, this is what Messiah says to Israel. I will go. That means he will go to earth. He will come to Israel in the context and return to my place. So Messiah will come and then he'll go back where he came from. Until they, which is Israel in the context, acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. So Messiah says to Israel, I will go to you. I will come to you, Bethlehem. Then I'm going to go back to where I came from, the ascension, until the people of Israel acknowledge their offense. So Christ will not return like what we read about in Revelation 19 until certain things are accomplished, one of which is Israel as a nation, those that remain acknowledging their great offense. What is the great offense of Israel? They rejected their Messiah. But one day, because of the persecutions of the false Messiah that they put their hope in, they're going to be driven to their utter end. Everything that's been built up in the modern state of Israel will be be thrown down. And at their very end, they will suddenly awake 
just like Paul did on the road to Damascus and realize who the Messiah is. Acknowledge their offense and call for him and he will come to their rescue. So if there's no rapture of the church, no secret rapture, we have a problem because we're told Christ can come at any moment, but he can't come till Israel wakes up and calls for him. Well, the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. We need to be ready for that at any moment. And then all of these things that were written will be fulfilled. And those seven thunders, when we get that vision of Christ holding open that book and swearing by him that lives forever and ever, whatever was concealed in chapter 10, we don't ever find out what it is in 19, but I bet it has something to do with Israel, probably a rebuke. Probably they call for him, and he's got a few things to say before he comes and rescues them, which he do. There are people that have done things, and they want to reconcile relationships, and we should reconcile relationships. But sometimes there are things that need to be said before that could be done. And I think we're going to see that with Christ and Israel. But notwithstanding, he will, re- he will redeem them, and so all Israel shall be saved. Living in that day, like, like Paul says, their conversion will be just like his. Amazing. Hosea, I mean, here we have um, in chapter 11, we have the second coming of Christ, and it's already been mentioned in the book of Revelation. We're told that the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet sounded in chapter 11. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. We read about this. We have a worship service in heaven as the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. Remember the seventh, the seven trumpets are the seventh seal. The seventh trumpet is the seven vials. These things happen very quickly. So in Revelation 11, we're near the end of the tribulation. And so the same scene we see at the end of chapter 11, not long after, continues in chapter 19. Because those vials are poured out quickly. Remember we talked about how those vile judgments would affect the earth in such a way that they had to happen quickly or nobody would survive. So... From what we see in chapter 11 through the vile judgments and the, 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 the throwing down of Babylon, we're talking about probably maybe even a matter of days, at most a few weeks. And so chapter 19 picks up with that scene in heaven we saw in chapter 11. Chapter 11, chapter 11, 11 verses 15 through 18 <laughs> transpires following its announcement and the quick succession of the vile judgments. And now we're here, chapter 19. 
19 picks up the chronology again, okay? Remember the chronology pauses from time to time in Revelation? We zoom out what I call a parenthesis to see what's going on behind the scenes or to encapsulate a greater context. That's what we got in chapter 17 and 18. Now we're picking the chronology back up. If I were to sum up Revelation 19 in one word, just one word, it would be appropriate. Hallelujah! The word hallelujah is, from, is the Greek that comes from the Hebrew hallelujah. What does it mean? Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. It's all over the Old Testament. But it appears only four times in the New Testament. And all four are right here in chapter 19. Praise ye the Lord. We can praise Him in everything. And give thanks in everything. In fact, we're told in 1 Thessalonians, this is His will. Even in His judgment. This is the judgment that's coming. And what do the saints do? Hallelujah! Hallelujah to our God. Even God's judgment is beautiful and worthy of praise. What we see here is not random violence motivated by hate and greed and selfishness like the wars of this earth. What we see here is war waged in righteousness. And it's beautiful. There's not a bloody, drawn-out battle on a battlefield. It's instant. It's the word of His mouth that destroys Antichrist. Hallelujah. I went hiking last week with Brother Robert and Brother Brandon, we took Tim up to Grandfather Mountain. It was such a beautiful day up there, rare. And I remember having a conversation with Robert. He may not remember. He was just talking about the beauty of all the things we see in creation. God's creation is beautiful. How can we deny Him? And we were looking at broken rocks and some of the crags and stuff up there. And I just made the comment that, Brother, what we're looking at we, we, we don't even really know what creation looked like because the man fell. Sin came into the world. And a lot of this beauty we see here, like on Grandfather Mountain, it was created from the upheaval of that great flood. That great flood that destroyed the earth. That was judgment upon the earth. But it's amazing that even in God's judgment, we can see beauty. We're looking at the destruction of the flood when we look at Grandfather Mountain. But it's beautiful. Even God's judgment is beautiful. You know, most of what you've been told about the age of the earth and the flood is not science and evolution. It's science versus evolution. The theories are purported over the facts. Science is supposed to be demonstrable and observable and repeatable. And there's nothing about the evolutionist age of the earth or stellar evolution in the heavens or most of what they teach is fact that can be demonstrated. Not life cannot come from non-life. Producing a couple of amino acids in a petri dish that can't survive is not life. As Robert and I were, had this discussion, and I was just thinking about this word "Hallelujah" in chapter 19, I, I started thinking about the creation and how complex it is, 
and how we're so blind and stupid that we deny the Creator. And we, these kids on these college campuses have all this faith that even the scientists don't agree about. They claim science, 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 but then you go look at the evolutionary science and their own words betray that they don't have any. They have more confidence than the scientists themselves do in their theories. These college kids, they've bought into it hook, line, and sinker. That the age of the universe, the age of the earth, the Big Bang, all of this is based on certain observations and this, that, and the other, and the speed of light, this, and all this. I just started thinking, in 1962, there was something discovered in the heavens that the scientists couldn't explain. It's, it, they've come to be called quasars. A quasar is, it gives off a light spectrum, so it's light, but it's behaving funny. It's strange. It's, a, it's, a, it's an element in the heavens that if we buy into evolution and if we buy into the Big Bang Theory and the things it teaches about the shifting of the spectrum to the red side and the speed of light, if we assume those, we have a problem because the first quasar that was discovered in 1962, a light object, according to the evolutionary theory, was only moving at 16% the speed of light. Light moving slower than light. That didn't make any sense. In 1977, another quasar was located... And according to the Big Bang Theory and the, the things that underlie that, which is a theory, not a fact, this quasar was moving at eight times the speed of light. So you have light moving slower and faster than light, but the speed of light is supposed to be the fastest thing in the universe. we got a problem, but we still got to push the theory. The evidence out there destroys it, but we still push it. And the college kids still say evolution is a fact. Evolution is a fact. Evolution is a fact. They'll say things like, there have been millions of transitional species found in the fossil record. There hadn't been a single one. They say it. It's amazing, the deception. The planet Saturn. Do you know that Saturn has 17 moons and none of these ever collide with its rings? Never. There's one moon that actually re resolves opposite the direction of the planet in its rings. But they don't run into each other. These rings have particles of ammonia which should have vaporized in space a long time ago. What happens if you pour ammonia out and leave it out there in the air? It vaporizes just like gasoline. But yet it's there. All the moons of Saturn have different makeups. They're, the elemental makeup of these moons is radically different. They're not the same. Our moon is larger in relation to the planet Earth or to the Earth it orbits than any other in the solar system. So if you, if you compare the size of our moon in relation to the size of the Earth, it's larger as an orbiting satellite than any other moon when compared to the planet size. There's moons that are bigger than our moon, and they would revolve like around Jupiter or Saturn. But remember, Jupiter or Saturn is far bigger than our moon. So in proportion, we've got a moon that is larger in relation to the planet it orbits than any other in the solar system. And the fact that such a huge body relative to what it orbits is so close to the earth and yet doesn't fall into the earth is astounding. 
What happens when man puts satellites into space? What, if these satellite trajectories aren't occasionally adjusted, what happens? You see it sometimes in the night sky. I've seen a satellite. Sometimes what we think is a falling star might be a satellite falling out of orbit. Satellites used to fall out of orbit all the time. But then as people began to understand orbital decay and make calculations, these things can be adjusted. The orbit has to be adjusted so it doesn't fall out of orbit. You can see satellites go across the night sky sometimes if it's dark. It's, it's really cool. But satellites fall in. They lose, they, their, their orbit decays and they fall, yet the moon century after century does not. Why? Because it was perfectly designed by an omniscient designer. Did you know that the, the moon does fall? It does fall. It falls. It tries to fall out of orbit. Every second it falls 0.127 centimeters toward the earth. But as it falls, there's a strange sideways motion that pushes it 1,001 meters horizontally. So as it falls, it's pushed. Therefore, this horizontal motion is just enough to compensate for its fall and carry it around the earth's curvature so that it never, ever falls. Evolution would have us believe that everything we see, it's bad enough here on earth, but look to the heavens. There's zero evidence for stellar evolution. It would have us believe that everything we see is just a fortunate accident. But yet planets and galaxies and suns rotate at intervals you can set your watch by. How blind is man? But we look at these things and we can say, Hallelujah! And give praise to God. That's why I love to walk in the woods, to sleep under the stars, to climb the mountains, to park in the desert, not because I worship the creation, but because I love my creator and I love to see the handiwork, even if that handiwork is but the remnants of divine judgment. And I think about how we can't even comprehend what he has prepared for us that love him. He's revealed much of that to us in the scriptures. But what, what's coming for us is a, a kingdom without the curse on this present earth and then after that a new heaven and a new earth. Praise God. I came across, you know, I know this is kind of off topic, but I came across a couple of quotes by scientists themselves, by evolutionists themselves, those that study, those that rack their brains have far less confidence in these theories than the college kids who've been brainwashed. There was a... Um, An astronomer, one of the best known astronomers of the 20th century, his name was Robert Jastrow, he said these things. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are remarkably the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason... The story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. 
That's powerful. In 1978, in Geotimes magazine, an evolutionary astronomer by the name of John Eddy said this. Think about this when you hear people mock the biblical timeline because we favor billions of years. This is what, a, what an evolutionary astronomer said. I suspect, not I know, I suspect that the sun is 4.5 billion years old. However, given more new and unexpected results to the contrary and some time for frantic recalculation and theoretical readjustment, I suspect we could live with Bishop Usher's value of the age of the earth and the sun. Remember Bishop Usher took the biblical timeline and said that the earth was created in 4004 B.C. based on the biblical revelation and the genealogies. So about a 6,000-year-old earth. He says, barring new evidence... We can live with Bishop Usher's value for the age of the earth and sun. I don't think we have much in the way of observational evidence in astronomy to conflict with that. Are we the fools? But for the grace of God we are. But when your eyes are opened by Messiah, a lot of things make sense. That should be common sense. But in our sin and in our pride, we don't even have common sense anymore. I don't know why I started thinking about that stuff when I saw this word hallelujah. Because we can look at creation and say hallelujah. We can think about these things and say hallelujah. But when the world looks, they try to explain it away. They put their fingers in their ears and try to silence it. They get mad when you talk about Christ coming back. Why do the saints sing hallelujah here? And I'm going I'm to end with this. Why do we see hallelujah in verse 1? Much people in heaven. We see it again in verse 3. Again, hallelujah. In verse 4, the four and twenty elders and the four beasts, the same entities we saw in Revelation chapter 5 when the Lamb takes the scroll. Remember, the elders represent the people of God. The church in particular who is in heaven in chapter 5. Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the four and twenty, the four beasts are the cherubim. One is missing. He fell. His name was Satan, that great Leviathan that Christ will, that God will punish in the last days. Again in verse 6, the voice of a multitude, hallelujah, four times. Why? Why are they praising God? In chapter 5, it was because of the cross. Thou hast redeemed us by thy blood. But in chapter 19, it's not because of the cross. It's because of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to say something here that your reaction might think, what? The second coming of Christ is the most important doctrine in all of Holy Scripture. More important than the cross. From God's perspective, it's the most important thing. Go read Psalm 2. Guys, the book isn't about us. The redemption of man is a glorious thing. But it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. And I'm going to tell you right now, if there's no second coming of Christ, where the kingdoms of this world are conquered, and where the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord, then all the cross is is a good bedtime story. 
most important doctrine in the Bible. It outnumbers all other subjects in the Bible, five to one. Just go read the Old Testament. It's got to be key to understanding the Scriptures because it's all over the Bible. It is here when Christ returns that the head of the serpent is crushed. You remember there in the Garden of Eden what God told the serpent? We had the first gospel. In Latin, they used to say the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Genesis 3.15. The first time we see the Messiah and the first time we see the anti-Messiah. Messiah and the Antichrist in one verse. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed, the seed of the serpent is Antichrist, and her seed, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, God in human flesh, not a man, by just a man, because man is a seed of a man, but the seed of the virgin. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The serpent will bruise the heel of Messiah, but he will crush the serpent's head. The crushing of the head didn't happen at the cross. A lot of people teach that. That's the cross. No, 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 no. It's not the cross. I can prove it to you. Turn to Romans 16. Romans 16, years after the resurrection, years after Calvary, Paul is writing to the church at Rome with confidence. And in verse 20 he says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. He speaks of the crushing of the serpent's head as yet future. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He says, under your feet, that is the feet of the church. And in chapter 19, we'll see the church is with Christ when he comes back to crush the serpent's head. From God's perspective, when I think about what's important, I think about Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Yet, God says, I will set my king upon my holy hill. Thou art my son, this day have I anointed thee, and I will set you up. That's what God says. When I look back at the the story of Israel in the desert, you know, they got to the land, they sent the spies into the land, and then they became afraid, and they began to murmur and complain. Only Joshua and Caleb had faith that God would do what he said he was going to do. And then God told Moses to get back, I'm going to wipe this people out. I'm tired of their murmuring and complaining, and I'll raise up a nation. Moses interceded for the people. Please, Lord. Please, Lord. And God said, okay, I've heard heard your intercession. It was a picture of what Christ does for the believer. But in, in Numbers 14, verse 20, after Moses begs the Lord to pardon the people, he says, I have pardoned according to thy word. But verse 21, make no mistake, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, because these men didn't believe and this generation didn't believe, everyone 20 years old and upwards is going to have happen to them exactly what they said. They spoke their own judgment. They're going to die in the desert. 
Those 20 years and younger, I'll bring them into the land except for Joshua and Caleb. They'll come in because they believe. But God says, look, I'll pardon their iniquity, but make no mistake, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. When does that happen? The coming of Christ. That's what's important to God. I would say that the most important principle in the Scriptures is the authority of God's Word. A principle is a general truth from which all other truths proceed or other truths proceed. The most important principle is not the cross. It's the authority of this book. The most important doctrine is the second coming as revealed in the book. Remember the most important verse in the Bible? Revelation 4.11. Many, 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 many Sundays ago. Most important verse in the Bible, in my opinion, one man's opinion. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. God made everything, and the things that happen, happen for His pleasure. That ought to be enough for you. Most important chapter in the Bible is Revelation 5. The Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. It's His title deed. He's coming to claim what is His. And the earth will be returned to the state it was in the Garden of Eden. These things are important. And without these things, the cross is just a bedtime story that has no real ending. It's a feel-good story. Just like those that go around preaching the cross as if all it was was to show God's love. No, it was a propitiatory sacrifice. It was a substitution. It appeased the wrath of God. For sinners. 1 Corinthians 15, we're told exactly what the gospel is. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should preach that. But notice what Paul does. He says, according to the scriptures. Without the authority of this book, we don't believe and accept this as God's word. What does it matter what's in there? And then if you go on and read the rest of the chapter... You'll see he is very clear that certain things must happen in the context of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. That's the rapture. Then come at the end. His coming, Revelation 19. When he sh- no, the end is actually after the millennium here. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and and power. That's the end of the millennium. We'll see that later in chapter 20. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The second coming in the millennial reign has to happen so that all enemies are put under his feet and God's word is fulfilled and God is glorified. So in the context of the gospel here, he must reign. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death at the end of the millennium. For he that hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If these things concerning the second coming of Christ are not important, why the heck do we baptize each other then? 
This isn't talking about Mormon baptism for the dead where we go and baptize people in the place of dead people hoping it'll make them right with God. What is the picture of baptism? It's death. Buried in death, raised to walk in newness of life. When we baptize, we don't baptize for the dead people. We baptize for the dead, for death. So why the heck do we do that? If there's no second coming, there's no kingdom of righteousness, there's no resurrection. None of that would make sense. This is an important doctrine in the Bible, as is biblical authority. And I've got to end with a question. Why don't we preach it? There's a lot of gospel preachers out there that will preach the gospel behind the pulpit. But the authority of the scriptures and the second coming of Christ are untouchable because God forbid we would offend somebody and there's differences of opinions amongst genuine Christians about the end times. No, we should preach these things and preach them with authority. Those of us that share the gospel on the streets, let's preach the gospel. But let's not neglect that the Jesus we preach who died, who was buried, who rose again is coming again. He's coming again and boy is he mad. Today is a day of salvation. God says in Psalm 138 too that there's something He's put up above even His own name. His Word. Mm -hmm. The authority of the Scriptures. The Gospel can only be understood in the context of the authority of the Scriptures and the coming of the King to set up a kingdom. I'm not trying to say that... Don't, don't, don't hear me say something about the Gospel. I'm not saying we need to preach the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus Christ will change your life. The gospel is not come to God and have all your problems taken away. The gospel is not praying a little prayer. The gospel is not believing in God or believing in Jesus. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. God shed His blood and was a substitute sacrifice in our place. And because of what Christ has done, the gospel, God doesn't offer us salvation. He commands that men everywhere repent. Because there's coming a day when He judges the world in righteousness. You see, Paul didn't preach the gospel apart from the coming of Christ. He's coming to judge the world in righteousness and commands you to repent because of what Christ did on the cross. So we need to declare these things. The second coming, the unveiling. Don't talk to me about the cross if you lightly esteem the second coming of Jesus. If you lightly esteem the authority of the scriptures. That's what makes the cross real. The scriptures and the promise of a culmination when judgment is manifest. When all that is wrong is made right. We'll start looking at verse by verse next. I, I need to talk. I don't know if I'll be preaching next week or not, but we'll, we'll, if not, we'll pick this up after the first of the year. But um, in chapter 19, the first 16 verses, we're going to see the second coming. The second coming is the unveiling. The heavens are opened. And when the heavens are opened, every eye shall see him. The unveiling, the uncovering. What does it say in chapter 1, verse 1 of this book? 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember that word comes from the Greek apocalypsis. It's where we get the word apocalypse. Apocalypse means unveiling. In the Spanish Bible, that's the name of the book of Revelation, Apocalypsis. This is, we're going to see it right here. The uncovering, the unveiling. The heavens open. Isaiah the prophet said, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, Lord, and come down. His soul was vexed like ours should be in these dark days. May that be our prayer. Oh, Lord, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and come down. Oh, Jesus, that you'd come back, that we'd be looking for him to come to his church, that when we share the gospel, we would see it in the context of what's coming to this earth, and that we would, knowing the terror of the Lord, persuade men, as Paul said. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Praise God, today is not that day of judgment. Praise God, today is a day of salvation. Jesus Christ suffered, died, and rose again that we might have life. And those of us that have been saved, we know it. We're different than we were before. There's many that say they know God and all this kind of stuff. But we know because we've been changed. I know I was. I said for years I was a Christian. I wasn't. But when he saved me, I was different. Didn't mean I had perfect sanctification and I didn't struggle and that God didn't need to grow me. He's still doing it. But it was different. As Christmas is approaching, um, you know, it's amazing how our perspective of things changes from when we're children. When I was a child, it was taboo. Do not say Xmas. Xmas is like taking Christ out of Christmas. We can't do that. That's terrible. But guys, let's be honest. My opinions change as I've grown older. Why not call it Xmas? Because what's celebrated in this country doesn't have Christ anywhere in it. So why put him in it? Why put him in something he's not in? We may as well call it excellence. It is. Because what this country celebrates has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. We as Christians, when we, whatever we choose to do during this season, it ought to look different than the world. It ought to look different than the world. What did those... Jason asked about that word Noel earlier in, in, the, in, the, in the worship service. Noel comes from a Latin word and a French word, and it's thought that it's related to the word news. The first Noel, the angels did sing. What did the angels do? They announced. And it, it came to be associated with birth, just like the word nativity does, and it means Christmas. But it's related to the, to the concept of announcing. Wouldn't the best way to celebrate the birth of Christ be to act like those who were there when it happened? What did they do? They announced the Messiah. They announced him. The angels did. The shepherds went and told it to everybody in Bethlehem. The kings went and declared it to King Herod what they found in the scriptures. Anna the prophetess went out and declared it. Simeon had been telling people to be ready and went looking for it. That's how we celebrate the birth of Christ, not with Christmas trees. And if you want to have culture and all of that, I'm not talking about the evils of Christmas trees today. I'm not going to pull out a verse from Jeremiah that's clearly talking about cutting down a tree and fashioning it into an idol. And say that's talking about Christmas trees. I'm not saying that. But we may as, call, we may as well call what America celebrates Xmas. Because it's not, there is no biblical Christ in it. And we should use it as an opportunity to announce the biblical Christ. In everything we do, whether it be celebrating with our families, some of them who are lost, gathering together as believers, going out, into the stores during this season, we, we need, 
If we celebrate the birth of Christ, it ought to look different than what it does for the world when it celebrates Xmas. Of course, the word X is from the Greek letter Chi, which is the abbreviation for Christ. So um, that's where that came from. But what what the world celebrates is Xmas. When the president puts a tree up in the White House and talks about keep saying Merry Christmas and keeping crying, it's not, it's Xmas. It's not talking about any of this stuff or else he'd be calling the nation to repentance. And it baffles my mind that the president of the United States gave a Thanksgiving proclamation last week without a single direct reference to thanking God. I love and pray for the president. I'm so glad I don't have to look that devil witch on TV every day. But guys, the spiritual condition of this country has only gotten worse. And you can't blame it on Trump. You, won't have, you can't blame it on anyone. The witch won't be able to blame it on anyone. The spiritual condition has gotten worse and we're so blind. But we can be different because we know what's coming. So this Christmas season, I just challenge you to be like those who celebrated the birth of Christ 2,000 years ago. Be a herald. Announce. Don't get caught up in all the subtleties and the chaos and the just the, the, the nightmare that is American society. I mean, the Black Friday stuff is just, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. And I saw the other day where we have exported this madness to the rest of the world. America's chief export is iniquity. Yes. And so now around the world they're fighting and punching each other during Black, Part, Black Friday sale. I mean, that's what Christmas has become. We may as well call it Xmas. But we need to be different. So cherish the fellowship one with another. Use the season as an opportunity to announce the Messiah. Not just that he came, but that he's coming. And let's, let's enjoy the things that we take for granted. Something as simple as gathering to hear God's word and feasting on the scriptures. That's the real spirit of Messiah. And that's what we should celebrate. Lights in a dark world. When Christ came, he shined as light in darkness, fulfilling the prophecy there in Isaiah. That's what we should be. Not just this time of year, but all the time of year. Anyway, I kind of got off course, but I, the reason I was thinking about Christmas is because in chapter 19, the first seven verses, what do we have here? We have the hallelujah chorus. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And then part of that course also comes back from chapter 11 that I read earlier that's kind of happening at the same time. When George Handel wrote his famous uh, musical oration, The Messiah, it celebrated the birth of Christ. It was meant to celebrate. But when we get to um, um, part two... We have direct quotations from the scriptures concerning the second coming of Christ. So even Handel's Messiah wasn't written without taking into consideration his second coming as well. And that's why I got to thinking about Christmas and Handel's Messiah. Right here we've got the Hallelujah Chorus. And we'll talk about that next time. Okay, I went a few minutes over. I'm sorry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you that the, the, the Christ we serve didn't just die and stay dead like, like prophets of old. He didn't just raise up from the grave and go back to heaven to get busy with some other world, some other universe, and lead us to run on our own. Lord, he, 
died, he was buried, he rose again, he returned to heaven, and from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. From thence he will come and take his church. From thence he will come and take what is his, what he purchased back on the cross. The title deed to this earth, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And when that's all done, and the last enemy, which is death, is destroyed, you will give us a new heaven and a new earth, wherein we are delivered from even the presence of sin. Thank you that in Christ we can be delivered from the penalty of sin. Through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, we can be delivered in this life from the power of sin and set apart. And one day when he returns, we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. Lord, how can we not preach it? Help us to preach and herald and announce the advent of Christ during this Advent season. Because as the Old Testament prophets, they never saw the first Advent apart from the second Advent. So should we be. Help us to be light in a dark world. Thank you for these encouraging words. And Lord, we just say today, like the saints of this chapter, hallelujah. Thank you for the food. Bless it. Bless our fellowship. Something we do not take for granted. Something that the world can't take from us. In Jesus' name I pray.